1: and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 523, The Confession of Jesse Miss Kelly. Now, this week's episode was a firecracker for sure on social media, and, and partly I feel like we are really starting to gain some traction because the opposing viewpoint seems to be getting really angry. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. there's a lot happening. And understand that all we're trying to do is to present the evidence. That's why we played the whole interview. Instead of me just telling you, or as you're gonna hear this week on Sunday, have an expert tell you their opinion on the interview, I wanted you guys to all hear it for yourself. Now, of course, there's my commentary, there's my opinions in there, but that's all that is. That's my commentary, my opinions, Uh, and again, if you wanna hear the whole thing without myself yammering in the middle of it, you can go to Callahan's, you can listen to that on your own, and I highly encourage you to do that. There's also a lot of other resources out there uh, that we may, uh, especially with the crime con schedule, and we'll talk a little bit about once we get started here, the fact that I actually got called for jury duty and sat on a jury yesterday, which was awesome, uh, disappointing, as we're going to explain here, and it also really jacked up our schedule, so uh, we're not sure what's going to happen next week. I think we may go to, depending on the response from Sunday's episode, uh, get into the reports and the interviews with Warren Holmes, Dr. Watkins, and uh, I think it was Dr. O'Shea, uh, or offshay excuse me that are experts that evaluated Jesse miss Kelly after he gave this interview prior to trial um, so we can get more and more expert viewpoints on this but we're really trying to give you guys everything it may seem like everything is slanted because that's just because that's the way that I'm interpreting the evidence so with all that being said um, I'm sure a lot of that we're gonna get and I'm sure really deep into the weeds uh, there was a lot of social media this week so we're gonna get, we're gonna get pretty deep into the weeds about this interview. So let's go ahead and get started and we'll start off a little bit of housekeeping. All right, Bob, let's start with a little housekeeping. I know that we've
2: got CrimeCon coming up this weekend.
1: Right. Actually, CrimeCon, we will be there. It starts today, the day this episode is dropping on Friday. So it's kind of last minute. But the one thing that I did want to make sure we get out there is that tonight, Friday night, we will be having a fan meetup and we're going to be hanging with some of your favorite true crime podcasts. There's going to be a ton of them there. Uh, I mentioned some of them before, you know, Lisa Strong with Crime and Precedence. I think Brooke Giddings is going to be there. There's going to be a lot there. But uh, for me, not that I, not that I don't love it, I especially love Lisa. Lisa Lisa's my girl.
2: Yeah, <laughs> especially when she... Comes to town to see you, and you're not even here. Right.
1: Lisa did did come to town to see me, and I was gone when she got here. Uh, But uh, I'm also going to be hanging out with uh, two of my favorite podcasts, four really cool guys, at the meetup, which is going to be tonight, Friday, at 8 p.m. at the Fuse Bar in, I believe the hotel is the Gaylord Opry Hotel or the Gaylord Opryland Hotel in Nashville. So even if you're not at CrimeCon, but you're in the area, 8 p.m. at the Fuse Bar. We're going to do a combined meetup. There's going to be a ton of true crime podcasts there. But I will most likely, you'll find me hanging at the bar with Mike and Becky and Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage and Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y podcasts. Uh, those are a couple of shows that we work very closely with, uh good friends with all four of those guys, and looking forward for a chance to hang out with them. And it's a great place if you're fans of this show or either of those to come meet the host in a very... Easy going atmosphere. We will just be drinking. Yeah. Drinking. Come on out and have a beer. Yeah. Acting a fool, probably. Just me. Just Mike will be acting a fool. <laughs> uh, so that's happening tonight uh, at CrimeCon. And I think that's all we got really for housekeeping. Although uh, I know that the Google Play issue last week, last I heard that's still not fixed. And again, I'm sorry for that, but that's not something that we have any, any control over whatsoever. That's all on Google.
2: And then also, I know that you posted on social media about your uh, jury duty participation and that went down yesterday.
1: So how did it go, about? Well, it went good and bad. And I know this is off topic for the case, but I think there's a good lesson here. And, and it's a good indication for all of you listening to know why we do what we do. We've always said that we are we are here for to find the truth, for justice for the victims, justice for the wrongfully convicted. But our, also our goal is to try to make a change in the criminal justice system. And I got a great firsthand view yesterday of the flaws in the system. So The case is over, so I'm allowed to talk about it now. It was a one-day misdemeanor trial for a drunk driving offense. I do have to hand it to the prosecutor, and I didn't catch his last name. It was it was a weird last name. I don't remember what it was. Uh, in Berrien County, Michigan, I got to hand it to him in the, in dire. He questioned me. He asked me what I would rate the criminal justice system from 1 to 10. He asked everybody that. I said a 4. He asked me why, and I told him that you know of course in in that process, I'd also mentioned that I was very worked closely with law enforcement for several years, and but then at the same time, now I do wrongful conviction work, so he asked me what I would rate the criminal justice system. I said a four, and he asked me why, and I explained to him I said, you know, to put it quickly and and summarily, number one, I think that the presumption of innocence is a fallacy; it doesn't exist. the prosecutors get the ball stacked in their court. Uh, because they are supposedly have the harder fight, because they are fighting against that presumption of innocence. But the reality is most jurors, when they see somebody who's been arrested and put on trial, they start with the presumption of guilt and work backwards. And that's why very few uh, actual trials, jury trials, end up in a not guilty verdict. And and then the other part is there's a lot of fallibility with our jury system, the, the way people are selected, the whole voir dire process, how... Defense attorneys and prosecutors alike are able to try to stack the deck in their favor, uh, you know, and, and it's supposed to be balanced because they each get the same number of strikes. But, you know, they're they're, tr- they're not trying to find just a general cross section of people. They're trying to find people that are going to be sympathetic to their case. So the prosecutor says, OK, uh, that's fair enough. And then later he asked me about the podcast. This is all still during what year? Voir- and he asked me, you know, is my work on wrongful convictions where, as he put it, I no doubt cover prosecutorial misconduct and police misconduct, is that going to affect my ability to be a juror? And I told him, yes, I believe it will. I believe that it would make me a better juror because I'm informed, I know how the system works, and I know how to evaluate evidence. He again says, fair enough. Then the judge asked him, do you have any peremptory strikes? And he said, I am satisfied with this jury. I mean, I I had my shit packed. I was yeah. ready to go. And this has happened to me many times. For those of you that don't realize this, I've, I've had jury duty four times in the last seven years, twice since I've been doing the podcast full time, uh, once was just last year. And I, I I get removed. In the past, I would get removed by the defense uh, because of my affiliation with law enforcement. And then lately, last year, I was removed by the prosecutor because I work on wrongful convictions. So I, I do commend the prosecutor for knowing that I I do this work allowing me to sit on the jury. Now, of course, then I had to scramble and uh, run out to my car because we're not allowed to have phones in the building and call Mike and call Tim Clementi, who we were supposed to interview yesterday. I coached my son's Little League team. I had to call the assistant coach and make a bunch of arrangements. But So I said to the jury, it's a, it's a drunk driving case, and I'll try to make this as brief as possible, but I, I hope that you'll find this interesting. So this woman was arrested and, and charged with drunk driving. Now, in Michigan, the legal limit for operating while intoxicated is .08. Uh, this woman blew a .05. Now, what I didn't know about our system is that .08 is just the level where it is assumed somebody is drunk. Below that, it's you can still make a case that they are too impaired to drive a vehicle safely. And most of that's based on the officer's assessment or any video evidence or anything like that of the person who's being accused. So we got a young cop. He's been on the force for six months. He worked as a part-time cop for two years before that and a couple other jurisdictions. So he's a young guy, I think a little overzealous uh but he stops at a gas station and sees this woman there and she's buying alcohol and he says that he smelled alcohol in her breath goes across the street parks and waits for her to leave now she comes out fills her tires up with gas fills her car or, excuse me fills her tires up with air fills her car up with gas then takes off and makes the 6 mile drive home he gets behind her on the highway and and he he runs her plate and it it comes back with her home address he says he knows where she was getting off because he knows her address. It's just right there off the highway. So as she's offing offing the highway, getting on the off ramp, he pulls her over. Mind you, her house, and he knows this, is less than a mile from there. She's just going home. He says that he noticed her swerving, and he, she crossed the center line and crossed the fog line, and she was driving too slow. Now, the dash cam in his car was not working, so we don't have any video evidence of that. And so he gets on the stand as the only prosecution witness, very small trial, and he says that he gave her field sobriety tests. And determined that she was drunk, and he did one where they they put a light uh, and they moved the light, and you're supposed to move your eyes and not your head. He says that uh, she he noticed her pupils shaking while she did that, and uh, the statistics say that if someone fails these levels of that test, that there is a seventy percent chance that they're intoxicated. The woman also had um, an injury to her leg; uh, she has nerve damage to one of her legs. So he wanted her to do the toe to toe walking, and he uh, she told him that, you know, I've got this problem with my leg, I'm worried about it. He said, I'll take that into account. She does it, does it successfully, and but, but he said but she didn't understand the instructions, you know, that he told her you got to you know, walk heel to toe, count out loud, one, two, three, but I want you to go to nine, not to three, and then turn around and come back. Halfway through, he tells her uh, to do something else, that she, she didn't say it out loud, and she said, am I supposed to take three steps or nine? So he considered that her failing the test or clues, he called them, to her intoxication and he said and, and if you fail two points of that test there's a 62 percent chance that you are intoxicated then the third one was which he testified that she was not able to hold her balance when she stood on one leg although she did have the leg injury and that she had to put her foot down so they make their case and then the prosecutor puts on the body cam video from the officer and it shows the whole thing oh the other thing was that i caught right away is the officer said that she was slurring her words very badly. So then they put this video on, and we get to see her interacting with him, and I'm immediately seeing somebody that looks completely fine. She is absolutely not slurring her words. You can't tell with the eye thing if her pupils are shaking in that video. Uh, And then when she walks toe-to-toe, she does stop and ask him to repeat the directions because she was confused what she was supposed to do. Uh, And then the balance one, she actually stood and counted out loud on one foot, on her bad foot, she got to, I think, 32 seconds. She counted to 32 before she wobbled a little bit and had to put her foot down. He went on to say that uh, he did two other tests with her where he had her say the ABCs without singing and pick a number between 12 and 14. And she did fine on both of those. So we got to see the video. And again, she wasn't slurring. He said she was. In cross-examination, the defense attorney said if she was slurring her words, why didn't you write that in your report? And he just said, oh, I must have forgot to write that in my report. So we got In my opinion, he was lying on the stand. She wasn't slurring her words. We could see that. And then he also didn't document that. But at the end of the day, that was the state's case. And in my opinion, he didn't prove his case. Uh, Because after that, he arrests her, takes her to the police station, gives her a breathalyzer test, and she blows a .05, which is just over half the legal limit. Uh, She had admitted to the cop that she had a drink at work. Uh, Before she left, she worked at a restaurant. Uh, on the stand, the defense attorney then put her on the stand and she said, I actually lied to him. I actually had two drinks at work. I had two vodka cranberries during the hour and a half when I was doing my side work, closing my shift up before I left. And I was fine. I didn't feel drunk at all. So even though she was a .05, they still charge her with it. In my opinion, you have. Oh, and then another good point was the defense attorney asked her, would she blew a .05? Did that surprise you? And he said, yes, I was surprised because it was inconsistent with my assessment on the scene which, in my opinion, meant you were wrong. You know, that th- that's the litmus test. You you did your field sobriety test. You thought she was drunk, although I didn't see it that way watching the video. And then you gave her the breathalyzer and found out she's not drunk. But that, that kind of was left by the wayside. So, in my opinion, the state's case was that uh, he assumed she was drunk, gave her the breathalyzer by his own admission. The breathalyzer was inconsistent with what he had assessed. I got to see the video. I didn't see a drunk person there. And then he said that she he thought that she was impaired because she failed certain points of the standardized test out on the scene, the field sobriety test. But he said so and testified in his own words that failing those points meant that there is a 70% likelihood that she is impaired. Well, that means there's a 30% likelihood that she's not impaired, which to me is absolutely reasonable doubt. Um, so the, the defense attorney did put her on the stand. I don't think that was a wise move, but I don't think it really hurt her either. Um, So long story short, as short as I can make it, the way the jury system works, it's a misdemeanor trial. There's six jurors. They appoint seven or they select seven. You all seven sit through the whole trial. And then at the very end, they pull a name out of the hat or a jury number out of the hat. And that number is the alternate that then gets to go home before we deliberate. So, of course, they pull the number after I sat in the trial all day and it's my number. So I don't get to deliberate. I have to go home. So I was bummed about it because, you know, I it, certainly it messed up my schedule and nobody likes to have their schedule jacked up. So I understand why people don't want to do jury duty. But this is why it's so important to not avoid it and to pay attention to the law and what you're supposed to be deliberating on. We were only allowed to deliberate on the evidence. It said right in the jury instructions that you're not allowed to give more weight to one individual over another just because they're a law enforcement officer. Although the prosecutor in his closing argument said, you know, the defense attorney said, this is nothing but a he said, she said. And then we have a breathalyzer because he's saying, there's no proof of this. He's just saying she was drunk. She's saying she's not. We did get to see the video. And then he turned and said, look at who's the he and who's the she. She was arrested for drunk driving. She admits she had a couple drinks before she drove. Uh, and she has every reason to lie because she doesn't want to get convicted. On the other hand, we have this sworn law enforcement officer who's who's sworn to serve and protect the community, which by the way, a little sidebar, and I know I'm rambling on and a lot of you are probably tuning out because you're not interested in this, but hopefully some of you are. So his, his reasoning for following her, what he testified to on the stand, was that when he saw her and smelled the alcohol in her breath, that he was a concern that she was a threat to the safety of others if she drove her car. But then he sat back and let her get in her car, let her drive out on the highway, on on a, a major highway on I-94 before he decided to pull her over when he knew that she was less than a mile from her house. In my opinion, if he truly thought she was a threat to safety and he was just, you know, being a decent guy, you stop the girl and say, hey, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure you're okay to drive. I smell the alcohol on you. Why don't we get you a ride and let's, let's save everybody a lot of hassle? But, you know, that, that's his prerogative. But to me, it was, it was conflicting to say that he was concerned about safety, but then he let her drive. Anyway, so I'm the alternate. I leave. I go home. The bailiff tells me you're still on standby until uh, the jury reaches a verdict. So I'll call you when the verdict is over. And then he calls me about 8 o'clock last night and tells me that the jury convicted her unanimous vote that she was guilty. And I was devastated. And you know this isn't a woman going to prison for the rest of her life, but an OWI is going to have a, a traumatic effect on her life. Like she could lose her driver's license, uh, the, the amount of money she has to pay. She may actually get jail time. She will lose
2: her, li- her license.
1: She will lose it. Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. So she's going to lose her license. She will get, she could get jail time. I don't know because she went to trial instead of pleading it out like most people do. Um, I don't know what the sentence is going to be, but it's just the woman was not guilty. When you, when you look at the evidence, as I said, the very best evidence that was put forward, which is all you're allowed to look at was that maybe if the officer is right, there's a 70% chance that she was too impaired to drive. Now, mind you, she was able to drive to the place. She was able to go inside and purchase the items she was looking for. She was able to put air in her tire. She was able to fill her car up with gas. She was able to make a phone call, light a cigarette. She had her faculties. She was able to carry on a conversation. But because it was a law enforcement officer that said she was drunk and she said she wasn't, six jurors convicted this poor woman. And really, all this woman did was have a couple of drinks over a two-hour period and drive home and the breathalyzer showed that she was not legally impaired by what we consider to be the legal limit. One way to look at it is just a complete joke, it's upsetting, but it goes right back to what I said to the prosecutor at the beginning, that our jury system is fallible, and there is no presumption of innocence. There's no way that woman should have been convicted. And also, uh, the other part that's really upsetting to me is, I believe that had I been on the jury still during deliberations, that she would have been acquitted. They deliberated for two hours. That means they were split. They did have to argue. I believe if somebody was in there that understood the evidence, it was able to explain to them exactly what I just explained to you, that she would have been acquitted. But that didn't happen, and now she's convicted of of operating while intoxicated when I believe she absolutely was not intoxicated while she was operating. So um, that's the story. I had I had put it on social media, and I told people I would talk about it on the follow-up. Um, So if you weren't interested in that, sorry for taking up that little bit of your time, but I think that it is a, a really good lesson for us in why it's so important to not blow off that jury duty, to take it seriously and learn and educate yourself and for God's sake, try to educate the other jurors in the room because that showed how easy it is to convict someone of a crime that they didn't commit based on the pres- actual presumption of guilt for anyone that was arrested by the police.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Okay, why don't we kick off our discussion of the episode with a voicemail from Katie.
1: Hi, Bob. This is Katie from Denver, Colorado. And I've been listening to your podcast this is Serial Dynasty Days. And I have to tell you, I have never felt more absolute outrage at an episode that you've dropped as I have with this latest Jesse Miss Ms. Kelly episode, I'm just blown away. My question to you is, if this tape is available to us now, was it available to Damien and Jason's defense attorneys for their trial? And if so, how were they able to use it and or not use it in that case? Thank you so much for everything that you're doing, but truly doing the work of heaven. God bless and have a good one. Okay, thanks, Katie, so much for calling in, and, and it's a good question, and, and I don't know if you have that in somebody—I know a lot of people on social media had asked kind of the same question, um, so you may have this a little further down, but—so the confusing part is Jesse and Ms. Kelly was tried separately first and convicted. His confession was played at his trial. Now, Jesse then refused to testify against Damien and Jason, and therefore the confession was not allowed to be let in as evidence. Now, as a sidebar, it was let in. People did know about it. It was discovered later in the juror notes that they were discussing the confession even though it wasn't brought in at trial. Part of the reason that led to their conviction being, well, I mean, it wasn't overturned. They they pled out before it was, but uh, that was one of the items on the table was the fact that there was juror misconduct because they were discussing evidence that wasn't presented at trial. But to answer your question, yeah, Jason and Damien's attorneys had access to it, but there was nothing they could do with it because again, it wasn't brought in a trial. Jesse Miss Kelly didn't testify at trial. So, I mean, I guess they could have tried to get Jesse to testify and bring it in, but it would have been, it didn't work for Jesse. I mean, they, they had two different experts come on, Offshay and Warren Holmes to testify about the interview. Now, to be clear about that, there were some restrictions that were put on them by Judge Burnett about what they could and couldn't talk about, but they, they were able to, let the jury know that there were big problems with this confession and that it was it was potentially they couldn't say that they had that they thought it was a false confession but they certainly laid that evidence out for them and it and the jury heard the whole interview but it it didn't matter at the end of the day they still convicted them and that's part of the reason why i wanted to do what we did this week which was to go point by point and listen through it because if you're not trained to look for certain things like suggestibility uh and and how much information is actually being put out by the defendant and where does certain information come from then it's easy to to glaze so you may listen to a part of of the interview let's say the the fact that uh, jesse said at the end of the second interview that they held the boys by the ears while they were forcing them to perform oral sex you could listen to that and kind of come away thinking well how did jesse know that as a matter of fact fogelman Hammered that at the, in the closing arguments of the trial. How could he possibly have known that? How could he have known that information? And, and to an untrained ear, you may think that. But if you go back and listen to it, you find out that it took 12 different exchanges between Gitchell and Jesse to get Jesse to say it. That the information came from Gitchell pointing to his ear saying, could it have been up here? Weren't they holding him here? Were they grabbing them like this? And then Jesse says, they grabbed him by the ears. So it's hard for a jury to maybe just hear the whole thing, uh, during the prosecution's case. And then days later, somebody else come in and say, Oh, there was all the suggestion and all this and there's problems with it. It's just really hard for people, number one, to wrap their brain around the fact that someone would confess to something they didn't do. Uh, and, and furthermore, without having that blow by blow during the playing of the confession, it's, it's, they're just not going to wrap their brain around it. So. It didn't work for Jesse's case. They certainly weren't going to admit it in Damien and Jason's trial. So it was supposed to have nothing to do with Jason and Damien's trial. But like I said, the jurors didn't know about it.
2: Okay, and getting to questions, this first one comes from Summer. This is so obviously a false confession, but where are these weird details coming from? Like the kids screaming, quote, don't, and other observations like that. Did he make these things up? Were these suggestions from the cops before recording? Did he actually see something happen, or was he a part of something and giving the wrong names? No,
1: I don't. I mean, in my opinion, he didn't witness anything, uh, and so, and so examples like what you just pointed out there—that's that's just an, an easy guess to make, you know. So if when you go back through, you know, there were—I'm looking right now—there were 340 questions posed to Jesse during those interviews. 211 of them were yes or no questions. 211 yes or no questions. And that's not even to get into all the suggestions and everything. So they're suggesting details that matter, right? And so when he says they're saying don't, like, you know, this is so a what's happening. And they, and they keep pushing Jesse to expand on this narrative that they're creating. Well, the example she's talking about right here with Chris Byers, that's a great example because they said, was Chris Byers raped? And he said, no. And they said, who raped Chris Byers? Jason raped Chris, Chris Byers. Mm-hmm. So what Jesse witnessed, what he he says first, no, he wasn't raped at all. Then they tell him he was raped. Then then they continue to ask him to expand upon how that was happening. What were they doing? And he's just, uh, you got to go back to what Dr. Wilkins said about how someone with Jesse's mentality views reality. And so he is now trying to imagine what this would look like. And so he says that he says, don't, that's not a critical piece of information that can be proven or disproven. It's nothing that, that adds any any strength to the case one way or the other. It's just him throwing in a little detail. So I personally, him saying that Chris Byers said don't during the rape, I think that's pretty a pretty easy conclusion for anyone to jump to that if that was happening, they might be screaming and telling them to stop. Jennifer
2: says, because of Jesse Miss Kelly's IQ, why is it that his lawyer was not charged with ineffective use of counsel for not going for failure to present diminished responsibility?
1: Jesse's lawyer, Dan Stidham, in my opinion, did the absolute best that he could. So he brought in on a, on a, on a shoestring budget. You know, it, it was, I think it was years before he even got paid for his work on this case. He brought in two experts, uh, Warren Holmes and, and I, I gosh, I think I've already messed this up three times a day, but, uh, Dr. Afshay both to present to the jury that this confession was false. Both, if you read their reports and read the interviews, and and like I said, we may get into those next week uh, if we if we hang on to this subject any longer, clearly their opinion is that this was a false, coerced confession. Judge Burnett, with Warren Holmes, and I think he did the same thing with Afshay, in a, in a hearing away from the jury where they couldn't hear it, told the defense and told Warren Holmes that he will not be permitted to go into the courtroom and tell the jury that his opinion is that there's no credibility in Jesse Ms. Kelly's statement. Really, in my opinion, it's sickening. What He he, he basically, not basically, this is what he said, but I'm just paraphrasing the exact words. He told him, I have already declared this confession valid. Therefore, I'm not going to let you go in there and say that it's invalid. He He wouldn't let them give their expert opinion. Because it conflicted with his opinion. And it's it's gross and it's sick in my opinion. So that, that's not Dan Stidham's fault. They did everything they could do to try to show the jury what was happening. And like I said, Holmes and Offshay both got to testify. And they did give some background and some information. They were able to dissect the, the confessions and in the, the interviews to an extent. But they weren't allowed to say, in my opinion, this was a false confession. That was not allowed By Judge Burnett, even though they were hired as experts to give their expert opinion, they weren't allowed to do that.
2: Okay, and Gemma says, I'm getting right confused with these so-called multiple confessions. To whom and when? I've heard something about a cellmate and Stidham, but these don't seem credible to me. Why would Stidham go public with something that can harm his client? Surely most of them are just
1: hearsay too. Some of them are hearsay and some of them aren't. Uh, And it wasn't Stidham going public with these. Jesse actually confessed to the prosecutors after his trial, against Stidham's advice. So Stidham was there. So as the story goes, after trial, in the car, in the police car, on the way back to the jail, the police officer said that Jesse Miss Kelly confessed to them again in the car. That one is hearsay. We don't know if that happened or not. I think it probably did happen. And I mentioned a little bit at the end of the episode, you, you have to understand, now the people that want to believe that they're guilty will obviously disagree with me, and that's okay, we can disagree on this. But in in my opinion, you can absolutely see why this happens. Jesse, again, according to the doctors that evaluated him, had the mental understanding of reality of a six or seven-year-old little boy. He didn't understand what was happening. Dan Stidham, his attorney, said that Jesse had such a lack of grasp on the system that he didn't understand the difference between a, a police officer and his own attorney. He thought that his attorney was one of the bad guys trying to put him in jail. And at the point that he got convicted, I think that Jesse thought that his lawyer had betrayed him. His lawyer's telling him, "I'm going to defend you. I'm going to keep you out of prison. We're going to go up. We're going to do this defense, and and, and we're going to we're going to end this." And then at the end of the day, he gets convicted and told, "You're going to prison for the rest of your life." And at that point, I think he feels betrayed by Stidham. All it would take, and I don't know that this is what happened, but all it would take is for one of those cops in the car. To tell him, like, look, if you, you know, you're, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. The only way you're going to get out of that is if you, you know, if you, if you tell him what happened. If, if you help them convict Damien and Jason, that's the only thing that's going to help you. It, it, it wouldn't even take that much for him. We, we heard, you heard firsthand how easily manipulated and Jesse's suggestibility factor actually is. It wouldn't take anything to get him to say it again. Uh, the so called Bible confession was when he supposedly then. Not supposedly. I think this did happen. Stidham confirmed it. He confessed again to Stidham. He went from there into the jail, confesses to his attorney, and then somehow, and I'm not sure, but I I still got to get into all this, he connects with the prosecutors, says that he wants to confess to them, and Stidham tells him, do not do this. And there's actually a recording of this where he puts his hand on a Bible and swears and confesses again. Uh, And Stidham at the beginning is, is saying that I am advising against this, but he's doing it anyway. Uh, and I, I believe there was something where Fogelman asked Stidham that Jesse, during his confession, said that when he was going home. He was drinking a bottle of, of, of Evan Williams whiskey and he got mad and threw the bottle of whiskey at a particular overpass or a bridge. And Stidham told Fogelman, Well, if you can go find that bottle, then I'll believe you, is how the story goes. And then they go find there's a bunch of broken glass and bottles. They find one that they then take to a liquor store and confirm that it is from an Evan Williams bottle. And after that, Stidham says, I, "I still don't believe it. I do not believe that he is guilty." Uh, so that's the one that has the most weight—the the so-called Bible confession. And another one is uh, he supposedly confessed to his friend Buddy Lucas, who you heard him mention in the interview. But that's a whole mess too. When you read that, you know the guy that he says he gave the shoes to. So they interview Buddy Lucas, and he says, "Yeah, back in February, we I got my shoes muddy, and Jesse gave me these white and blue Adidas and let me have them. It was months. It was like February, months before the murders happened." Later, as the police keep going back to that, well, they keep going back to him. Then he later says, oh, no, he confessed to me after the murders and gave me the shoes because he said he just couldn't look at them anymore. So he gave them to me is the story they ended up with. So that's one of the other confessions uh, where Buddy Lucas completely flip flop his story as time went on after Jesse was arrested. So those are and, and I may even be missing one there. I'm trying to think. there's supposedly six, one, two, three, four, five, that may be all of them. But again, as we said in the episode, this is not uncommon at all. Now, Jesse's, in Jesse's case, you've got a guy that just really doesn't have the capacity to understand what's happening around him. He is easily manipulated and, and suggested things and repeats them back. But take that away. in what you have, look at, look at so many other false confessions, uh, especially for an accomplice witness. I use the example of Jay Wilds. That was a perfect example. He continually repeats, and every time they get more information, they change their story to try to fit it. So with Jesse, after he's at trial and he hears the prosecution's case of what actually supposedly happened, well, then he, he goes back and he tells a new story. But the fact of the matter is Jesse never gets it right. He doesn't know. that You cannot get it right. You can, you can say that he confessed six times, a hundred times, a thousand times. It doesn't matter if Jesse is never able to actually tell you what happened. He never gets the bindings right. He never gets the uh, the anal raping part right. There's one thing after another, after another, the time of day. He never gets it right. He doesn't know what happened. And you cannot tell me that a person can confuse where he starts off with, that we went there early in the morning and the boys skipped school and they were there and at noon all this happened, that you confuse early in the morning and noontime skipping school with where he ended up with, which was it was getting dark at night when the boys came. You can't mix that up. You can't mix up the difference between watching them take the laces out of five different shoes uh, and then tying the boys up hand to foot with, they tied them up with a brown rope. You can't mix up the fact that after they were bound by only their hands, he says, that Michael Moore is able to run away while he's bound, when the fact is Michael Moore had the, the tightest bindings of all of them because he had the broken shoelace, his wrists were maybe six inches away from his ankles, tied wrist to ankle. There's no way that he could have ran. You cannot mix those details up if you were there. That's not Jesse being confused. It's Jesse not knowing what happened. In this interview, point by point by point, you saw the police tell him every detail. I will challenge anyone. I will, and I'll make this offer because there's a lot of people out there that are getting really upset at this point as I believe I'm making a strong case that the police did get the wrong people and we need to get closer to making this making the shift to looking for who did actually do it but i will make this offer all those people out there that disagree with me get together find someone who you think is is the best supporter of the convictions and i will be happy to bring them on the show so you can hear a fair and balanced discussion debate kind of like we did back in season one with uh and brockle brocklehurst brocklewurst whatever her name was. We'll bring them on, and and we'll, we won't edit it. And we'll just we'll have a discussion back and forth, and, and and I'll let you hear the other side of it. I'm not trying to only present one side of it. the The problem that people are having with this is that I'm looking at all sides of it and coming to a conclusion that is not, in, in my opinion, this isn't even close. Je, Jesse Miss Kelly not knowing what happened is not even really up for question for anybody, in my opinion, for anybody that is really looking at this objectively. He these are not details you mix up. He doesn't know. Like like I mentioned earlier, 340 questions. There's 211 yes or no questions. He was only asked 12 open-ended questions, and in all 12 instances when he was asked to elaborate on something, short of describing where Buddy Lucas lived, he got every single one wrong. And then he was corrected and changes and changes his answer. Out of the 211 yes or no questions, he answered no to 38 only thirty-eight of two hundred and eleven, thirty-eight. He answered no, and most of those. Go back and listen. Don't take my word for it. Most of those no's were were in the affirmative. They were so like they would say like, "So you didn't see that?" And he says no. So the only way they can really get him to say no is a question like that, like, "So you weren't there at that time?" No. Two hundred eleven yes or no questions. Thirty-eight times he says no. Most of those times, there's still an affirmative response. He went along with everything the police gave them. And if somebody wants to come on the show and do that, I'm happy to do that. I, I, I don't want to sit here and, and yell and argue with each other. If somebody wants to come on and have a civil discussion about it, let me know. Shoot us an email, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you want to do it, uh, and, and we'll do that. Because I challenge somebody to point out, give me one single piece of information in that interview that came from Jesse Ms. Kelly, One piece of accurate information about the crime scene that
2: came from Jesse. Danielle writes, During the interview, Gary Gitchell was asking Jesse about the knife. Jesse said it was a folding knife. I can't remember. Did Aaron describe the knife he saw? Did he say if it was a folding knife or not? Finally, the knife that was introduced at court as the murder weapon, the knife from behind Jason's house miraculously recovered from the lake, was that a folding knife?
1: To be honest with you, I don't remember off the top of my head about Aaron. Oh, Aaron. Yeah, I do remember that. The one in the lake was not. You're right. It was not a folding knife. Um, I don't remember what Aaron Hutchison said so it was it was a long like nine inch blade survival knife that they found in the lake behind Jason's house I was gonna say I want to say that Aaron said it was a folding knife too but I don't I, I'm not gonna say it because I don't know for sure I don't remember
2: I feel like you did say that
1: yeah it, it it may have been I have to go back and review or you can go back and review it but I mean the knife in my opinion is is irrelevant when you put it with if you're looking at Aaron's story or Jesse's story I mean none of it makes sense anyway but uh, definitely Jesse described a folding knife and the knife that they found that, you know, that, that, that Fogelman played the, I'm not saying this is the murder weapon, but it's the murder weapon, uh, with a, the big Rambo type survival knife as he's, you know, he's hitting the back of a grapefruit with it and say, know, well, look, I'm not saying this is the murder weapon, but look, look at these marks. Those look just like those marks on those bodies. Uh, but, but yeah, n- not the same as what Jesse described. So there's another factual error. And by the way, it's another factual error after Ridge said, so you saw somebody with a knife. Again, that didn't come from Jesse. Okay, and Stefan says, has Jesse ever explained after he was released
2: why he confessed?
1: A good thing to do would be to go on Callahan and read, and, and I'm starting to lean more towards where we may have to actually take the time and walk through these. Uh, I, I know there's people that are, that are loving every bit of this that we're covering. There's other people who are like, come on, let's move on. So I'm kind of, honestly, I'm kind of torn. Uh, but he interviews... Uh, with expert oh, Afshay after the convictions or or excuse me before the convictions, and he talks about what happened. He talks about the fact they showed him pictures of the boys uh or at least one of the boys I think it was like Michael Moore on an autopsy table they showed him uh they talked about the circle thing that they told him that you know your brain is telling us that you're lying, so we talked about all of that um, and so that's a good place to to research jesse's story jesse's recollection of why he confessed. But ultimately, basically, he just said he was he was scared. He wanted to go home. They they, they they wouldn't stop. They told him and that and here's a here's a couple of big red flags. One, they were able to convince him that he was wrong about his memory, about not being there. And then they were able to convince him repeatedly. And this is a huge because you, you could argue what I just said there. That's it's fine. Maybe he was there is what you would, someone would say on the other side of that. And that's fine. But listen back to that interview again. And look at how many times they were able to convince Jesse that he said something that he didn't say. That is a huge red flag. When, when Jesse would, would give a, a narrative that would explain something one way and they would say, okay, you said that this happened. And he would go right along with it. That is 100% absolute obvious sign of a false confession or of a false narrative given. Because if you're recalling an ac- actual memory, you will correct them. And if they say, you know, like when he says it happened at noon and when Ridge says, so you guys were out there that night, someone telling the truth and recalling an actual memory says, no, 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 it wasn't night. It was noon. It wasn't night. But Jesse just he's just looking for them to give him clues as to what he's supposed to say that's going to get them off his
2: Britney wants to know: Was the jury aware of previous interviews with Jesse before he re- his recorded confession?
1: So, really, there's a there's another question built into that question. The first question is: Were there previous interviews? And the answer is yes. Um, there's obviously he was in the station, and again in the interview with with Afshay, he explains the process, how he interviewed. He said they had nothing to do with it. Uh, they they showed him the pictures. They drew the circle. They played the voice. Uh, they gave him the polygraph test. Told him that he was lying. And then after that, so then, then it was after the polygraph that he supposedly, now there's no notes for this. There's no recording for this, but supposedly he confessed to Gitchell and they interviewed and then they turned the tape on, which that's, I'm, I'm, that's not uncommon. So if you're in now, I mean, my personal opinion is you should record everything so this shit doesn't happen, but it's not uncommon for, for an interview to happen to say, okay, now let's go ahead and get this on the record now and turn it on.
2: Right. Cause I think a lot of people think that that's
1: like shady business. No, and it's not at all. That's, that's, that's normal. Assuming, especially, that when the person starts confessing. So originally, Jesse was brought in to talk about Damien. He didn't think that he was a suspect. Uh, and, and actually, I believe he said in, in the Offshay interview that he thought he was coming in to discuss the, the report that he made about the guy behind the Goodyear building, the Tracy Laxton that we mentioned. Which that's a huge thing that 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 had happened. Many, Like I said, it, it's, the information is out there, so people really well-versed in the case know. But the general population doesn't know that Jesse had already gave them a tip about somebody else weeks earlier. Uh, but that's why he thought he was coming in to talk about, there's some question people they, that it was kind of a false pretense when they asked his dad if it was okay to give consent for him to interview and do consent for the polygraph and all that. And I don't know if this is true, but this is the way it appears to be. And what some people have suggested is that Jesse Sr., Jesse's dad, gave them permission because he thought he was just talking about the that the, the person, that Tracy Laxon that he saw weeks before. He thought he was in there giving them information. They're doing the polygraph for him to collect the reward right. for giving them the tip about this guy. And they flip it, start talking about Damien. Then he supposedly confesses to Gitchell. And some people will use that as an argument that, well, yeah, of course, you know, they're saying you said earlier because maybe he said it before they recorded. Maybe where's the interview notes for that interview? You know, why why is there nothing there for then? And again, it doesn't matter. So even if you even if that's true, he still gets it wrong. If it was a true narrative, he would just be repeating back what he knew. And again, we got some, you know, these aren't little details like was it three o'clock or was it three forty or was it, you know, so like, like, um, Jay Wild's testimony, his kept shifting based on the cell phone records, but it was all within a reasonable time frame. You know, it happened at 340, 345. And, oh, it was 315, depending on the, on the different call records. But Jesse just doesn't get it. And, and but, but he has these supposed sensory mem- memories. It's first thing in the morning, I wake up, bam, morning time, we're there, which changes all the way to, it was getting dark at night. That's not a mistake. That's just somebody that doesn't know, and he's trying to take the lead from the officers. And so, getting back to the question, did the jury know about previous interviews? I think so. I'd have to go back through all the testimony, but I assume, if memory serves, you know that the officers that Ridge and Gitchell when they testified, would have would have gave that timeline and narrative that he came clean, he told us these things, and then we turned the recorder on because they're they're trying to they're. they're they they have to know that this interview is is a, is a clusterfuck mm-hmm. and so they're trying to explain well he'd said this earlier um, but again and in the, in the reality of it and when we do a full analysis of it whatever he said earlier he still doesn't know because he's not drawing on real memories he's trying to repeat back something that they want him to say he can't remember what the hell he said and then and then he's just trying to pick up on little clues and you and you see that and, and for anybody and i don't know if anybody asked this if Gitchell and Ridge knew what they were doing, they absolutely did. And it couldn't be any more clear when you watch them back off a subject. So, so anybody listening can pick up very quickly that Jesse is, will, will make shit up. He just, if he thinks they want more information, he just makes up details. And so like a a good example is when they were discussing the bindings, when they came back, when they're trying to get him, you know, what what were the, what were they tied? Some rope, didn't he? Yeah. He says Brown rope and they were tied. Now, what should have happened there? If they were, if they truly thought he knew what happened, and they're trying to get to the truth, they would follow up with, "Okay, so where did the rope come from?" Would be the right way to ask that. Let him explain it. uh Where did the rope come from? It, the, but what gitchell knew, and this is what pisses me off about it, because he knew that if he said, "Where did the rope come from?" Jesse would have answered, and he would have made his problems a thousand times worse. Because he wouldn't just say, "I don't know where the rope came from." He might have, but more likely, what he would have said was, uh, Je- "Jesse, Jesse had it in a bag." Yeah, he that he had cool. in his,
2: or even—I mean, he could have said anything that would have just thrown the whole interview off.
1: Right. So now it's not just he got the wrong material, and, and you know, at this point, they're hoping that, that that the jury doesn't notice that he didn't notice them taking the the shoelaces out of the shoes. Um That was never really stressed. Uh, but now if it goes into not only was it a rope, but it was a rope that Jason brought, whatever his story is, this becomes a compounding problem and Getchell knew it. That's why he just immediately changes and he does. Listen back to it again, repeatedly. When Jesse starts explaining something wrong, instead of trying to clarify it, they just get away from it and then they'll circle back to it later and tell him that he said something that he didn't say is how they get away from it you know so he's like you know he's like this happened then i left all right they don't want him to leave then so they go okay you you came back though and 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 the boys were tied up how'd they get tied up and so they give him the information that he needs because he got it wrong the last time
2: but one thing i noticed about it was that initially and we know that we just discussed it we know that jesse and gitchell and ridge talked before that uh before the recording but it's funny if you listen to Jesse at the beginning of the interview. He's very uh, obviously he tries to include himself as little as possible, and it's up to the investigators to sort of twist the narrative and get him to be more and more and more involved. Right? Because at the very beginning, it was what was what was it? I I was there. I saw it. And I went. I ran home. Yeah. And then you know by the end of it, it was I did this this this. I was very very much involved in it. Same um,
1: thing that happened to Jay Wilds. Yeah. The the police are trying to get. The more involved the subject is, the more leverage they have on them mm-hmm. you know so so they they need to be able to charge them with a crime too, so they have something to leverage them to get them to testify against the other party you know so if it's just something they witness, it's different, but if it's you no know, I participated well right. now you could get charged with murder if you don't help us, right, and Jesse didn't help him, he got he did get charged with murder, yeah we were discussing earlier, getting back to what we were just talking about uh with the the tactics and them knowing the difference and 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 going back to the fact that what did Jesse actually know? What information came from him? So when you read the closing arguments of Fogelman and Jesse's trial, he points out that you know they want to talk this false confession stuff, but you know how did he know this? So one of the things he said was, "How did he know that the boys were tied up and that they were bound?" Mm-hmm. And and you and I just uh, day before yesterday, I was I was showing you as I was kind of breaking down and taking some of these notes that in the exchange about the bindings, Jesse said five things. These are the five things. Hmm mm-hmm Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. yeah they were tied up that was jesse's part of that exchange so, so the exchange is ridge saying so you came back and they were tied up uh-huh okay and they were they were bound so their hands were tied up and somewhat uh-huh and so he just so the information and that's a really take any subject for, for those of you whether you whether you believe the west memphis three are innocent or guilty go through that interview and take any subject and break it down like that. And, and you might be shocked. Maybe it'll actually change the minds. I don't know. Cause we did it the other day with a couple. That was one of them. Uh, where we look, okay, in this exchange, here's the, here's the whole exchange. Where did the information come from? It came from Ridge. How long did it take him to get from here to here? From Jesse saying this didn't happen to saying it did happen. And then break out exactly what words did Jesse say? And you pull those off to the side and realize what he's saying is yes, uh huh mm-hmm over and over and over again and then when he finally says words almost every instance if you jump back to the line before by the detectives he's repeating exactly what they said sure. the exact words they said
2: and also they were able to kind of fall back on that you said earlier you said earlier you remember earlier when we talked about those kind of leads too
1: exactly right yeah they would just tell him no you said this earlier and jesse would say okay even though he didn't say it
2: earlier. right okay and we've got one last question here from chris what the hell is with this briefcase business I don't remember a briefcase being collected as evidence or frankly, even ever being mentioned.
1: So the briefcase is like the big rumor in this case. Uh, so there was like rumors going around that da- I think it was a Damien had a briefcase and had pictures of the kids in it. Uh, you know, trying to show some premeditation on Damien's part. And so we heard in Aaron Hutchison's interview, remember that he said that, you know, they asked him, well, they had all this paint that they were painting their face with. And how did they get it there? Oh, they had a bag. Well, what kind of bag was it? It was a big old bag. And they said, oh, was it a bag or it was a briefcase? And he said, it was a briefcase. Ex- exact same, you know, same mentality as Jesse Miss Kelly, same result. They made a suggestion. So, so so this is a couple days before or the day before that Ms. Miss Kelly was uh uh interviewed and arrested. I don't remember if it was the May 27th or the June 2nd one. But anyway, they already tried to get Aaron Hutchison to say there was a briefcase and, and succeeded. And so then they're trying to get Damien or Jesse to say the same thing so a lot of this in my and this is I, I have to be clear on this It was my opinion based on my analysis and trying to you know what we do is try to piece together the different pieces of the puzzle and how they fit together right Uh and so I think a lot of the questions they're asking they're trying to add credibility to Aaron Hutchison so, so when he interviewed the day before so they're trying to get Jesse to confirm that they had this briefcase and, and that's where that came from. That's where the pictures come from. But he's, he's right. There never was a briefcase collected into evidence. It was never found. There was never any pictures found like that. And you saw someone in Paradise Lost where uh, John Mark Byers was saying, you know, I heard, you know, there was so many, there was rumors that, that Damien was found to have Chris Byers' testicles in a jar in his bedroom, which is complete BS. That didn't happen. So the briefcase was, as far as I know, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, that was a rumor. They brought it into Aaron Hutchison's interview and then tried to bring it into Jesse Ms. Kelly's interview as well. But it never really panned out to anything. So
2: the detectives just dropped it?
1: I think so. I don't remember what they if they ever did anything with it.
2: Okay, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. Thanks, everybody, for your thoughts and theories.
1: And hopefully any of you that are going to be at CrimeCon or anywhere near Nashville tonight, Friday, May the 4th. Hopefully we'll see you at the Fuse Bar at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel uh, tonight at 8 p.m. And also on a, on a more serious note before we close things out, this weekend is in fact the 25 year anniversary of the murders of Stevie, Michael and Christopher. And so tomorrow, May 5th is the actual anniversary of the day that they went missing and were killed. Uh, we'll be discussing that a little more on Sunday. Uh, I do want to point out that we nailed it with the, uh, the Amazon wish list that was put together by, by Sherry. Um, we actually filled up the wish list twice. And, oh wow. Yeah. And so they, they had to add more and now they have added more uh some big ticket items. Not huge but like things like beanbag chairs and things for the room. We just keep you know, the, the the Truth and Justice Army has has been filling it in. And and it's not just us. Sherry has put that out on other groups. And so people that don't even listen to the podcast, that just just have filed the case for a long time, are contributing as well. Uh, And it's just made a huge impact. So they keep going back to the school saying, what else would you like? Because we've already bought all this stuff. So uh, that's huge. Another thing is tomorrow night, Saturday. And I should have these details. Look on social media to confirm. Um, But I I believe that we want people around the whole world at at 6.30 p.m. from 6 to 6.30 to turn their porch lights on in honor of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Uh, because that's the time about the time that they went missing, uh, and also if you can, if you if you want to really show your support for them in honoring the victims of this crime, to hang blue and yellow ribbons around trees—they're the the Cub Scout colors—so a blue and yellow ribbon around a tree is—and and if you do that, take pictures, put it on social media, use the hashtag the Forgotten Three, uh, so we can get those all in one place. So anything that you're doing to honor the memory of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. This weekend, please do that. Um, I For those of you that are going to be at CrimeCon Saturday morning, I will be giving a speech presentation called uh, uh, West Memphis 3, Tearing Down the Misconceptions. Uh, that is going to be heavily based and aimed at honoring these three victims on the anniversary of their deaths. Uh, and with all that being said, hopefully we'll see a lot of you guys in Nashville this weekend and look for Tim Clemente's analysis, a professional expert analysis of Jesse Ms. Kelly's confession on Sunday. Every weekend, Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer. And all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod.com. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Sorry about that. It sounded violent. <laughs> I know it was. I was actually trying to mask a burp. Oh, <laughs> That's what happened. I didn't want to. Sorry, guys. <laughs> video sucks. The video sucks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and for me personally, the best part of Brooklyn and Sheets, you see how I gesture when there's nobody in here? It's stupid. <laughs> so. Um, I'm trying to remember now what her original question was, was. trying
2: to take the lead from the officers.
1: Yeah, meaning that the officers are leading him to say certain things.
2: Right. Oh, okay, okay. I got you now. I'm yeah. sorry. I interpreted that differently. I got you.
1: Yeah, you're gonna probably going to want to cut that, aren't you? Definitely going to cut that. I'd like for you to keep that in there. With,
2: taking the lead, you know what I was thinking of? I was thinking of like spades. Taking the lead. Or t- when you <laughs> said that, I thought he meant taking control of the conversation himself. And I'm like, no, that ain't right. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah, Yeah, I get it. Yeah, but he was he was following their lead is probably what you should have said.
1: Oh, so now I'm the idiot.
2: (laughs) I'm going to call you out, Bobby. (laughs) You get me every time we record. I'm going to get you once.
1: (laughs) All right, I'll take that.
2: All right, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow up. We had some really good discussion and uh, glad I was actually a part of it this week. (laughs) I don't know why I like I come in like almost like militant. Yeah, a little bit. That sounded kind of whiny. Yeah, I did. You're bitching.
1: Just bitching. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's. That was a good start. It was really good. It was a good okay. I said, Reeks. It's one of your best okays. Well, that's good. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Never done that before. No. Learn something new every day.